serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits logs may be endangered by them. If the axe is dull, and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. If the serpent bites before being charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of his talking is folly, and the end of it is wicked madness. Yet the fool multiplies words, and no man knows what will happen, and who can tell him what will come after him. The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad, and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility, and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through indolence the rafters sag, and through slackness the house leaks. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. Furthermore, in your bedchamber do not curse a king, and in your sleeping rooms do not curse a rich man. For a bird of the heavens may carry the sound, and winged creature may make the matter known. I know it's Father's Day, but I'm going to go to Ecclesiastes 10. Part of it, I just have too many flaws that I really don't want to painfully go through anything. But actually, as I started going through Ecclesiastes 10, one of my favorite sections in Proverbs comes from a section in which many of the principles that are found in this chapter are found there as well. And so hopefully as we walk through this, you'll begin to see that there are principles that apply to us as fathers. And essentially, if I could sum this thought up that we come into Ecclesiastes 10 is living wisely in the foolishness of this world. And as fathers, this is our desire to help our kids understand how to navigate this world and the things in it and to see it for what it is and to see things clearly and ultimately to see them from God's perspective or if I could put it this way, we must live by God's wisdom and not our own folly. And what's interesting is that in Ecclesiastes 10, Solomon addresses so many issues of life. He's going to talk about rulers. He's going to talk about the issue of our mouth and how we speak. He's going to talk about the issue of labor. and He's going to talk about leadership and what that ought to look like. And actually, the more I went through this chapter, the more I realized there's so much here for me to understand as a, as a father as I raise my kids, things that I need to comprehend and I need to work out in my own life. So hopefully as we walk through this, you will gain something from it. But one of my favorite Proverbs, although also the most convicting one, is in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 7. A righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. I've often gone back to reflect on this proverb, especially when my first child came. And from that point on, I've constantly come back to this particular proverb to ask myself, am I walking in integrity? Am I living a life in which my kids can follow in my footsteps because they're going to copy me? 
Whether I'm intentional with it or not, they are going to copy the things that I do. The question is, what kind of life am I living for my kids? And it's interesting that this particular proverb, it begins with the statement of the, the father's walk and it ends on the reference of the fact that the kids come after him. Are they going to follow in our footsteps and walk the way that we walk? Do we help them to navigate this life? Do we help them to understand how foolish, right, foolishness stinks in our life and what it can do to our life and the way that sometimes we can do so much that seems so right and then unravel and undo it by one moment of our life, by something we say that's foolish or something that we do that is so foolish. We can unravel so much virtue and so much wisdom in our life by one wrong decision and that weighs on me as a father. He's going to deal with the issue of foolish rulers in chapter 10 verses 4 through 7 and we looked at this before and the reminder here is that for those in leadership, they need to practice self-control before they can control others. But in reality, it isn't about the controlling of others. When you understand the need for self-control, you realize that it's about leading others. It's about living a life that they can imitate and look at and be like. It's interesting because I started thinking about this. You know, I was going through 1 Corinthians and then 2 Timothy years and years ago. And realizing the relationship the Apostle Paul had with Timothy. had some profound impacts upon my life because something I realized about leadership is that if you're going to be a good leader, you need to be a good follower. See, we're so busy as men trying to be our own man, doing our own thing and being our own self and making our own life, but we fail to realize that that's not discipleship. And that's not true leadership. Because the Apostle Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. When he sent Timothy to the church of Corinth, he says, he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ. Why? Because Timothy had followed his life and seen his life and imitated his life and took these things on for himself and walked the kind of walk the Apostle Paul walked. And so therefore, Paul knew that he could send him to Corinth or Ephesus or anywhere else for that matter and knew that he would lead them in the ways of Christ. A good leader needs to be a good follower. So it's interesting that as he deals with the issue of rulers and our relationship to them in verse 4, he talks about the fact of those who might rise up in anger against us. His exhortation, don't run. Don't run. It's interesting how many times I think about this in my own life, right? And it isn't about stand your ground. What I find interesting is what Solomon says here. It isn't stand your ground, stick up for your rights. He wants us to bring peace in reality is what he calls for. He says in verse 4, If a ruler's anger rises against you, you do not leave your position. Composure, and the word in Hebrew means a healing or health. Composure can lay to rest great offenses. In other words, we can bring about healing in this relationship. In other words, we need to seek peace. Oftentimes when the tough get going, <laughs> right, the weak run. Solomon says you have a tendency sometimes when you find yourself in an adverse circumstance that you want to just take off and go somewhere else. Don't do that. 
That's why it's so frustrating for me in talking with a friend of mine who's a pastor near Mount Angel. And he says, all the people are leaving the body. They're all moving out of state because they don't like the direction things are going. And he says, I'm saying to them, why not stay and be a light? <laughs> Someone's got to, right? Solomon says we have a tendency to do this, that when faced with opposition, we have a tendency to want to run, to move somewhere else. But what about endurance? What about bearing up under? So, Father, do my kids see me making a stand for truth, bearing up under, and seeking to make peace when there's contention? Or do they see me turn and run whenever things get difficult? It's interesting, I realized this lesson early on with the kids, and it started with Ian, and it is held true with every single one of them, is that our children look to us for stability in life. When they know mom and dad are okay, life's okay with them. More importantly, when they know mom and dad are okay with God, everything is okay with them. They know that there is stability there. And they look to us for that. But if we're always turning and running whenever things get difficult, what lesson do they learn from us? He goes on to say in verses 5 through 7, it's foolish to put fools in high places and qualified people in low offices. The temptedness of being to reset or rewrite inequities. Singing about these verses, right? Our present day. Help them to see the world and what's in it. Help them to see what's going on and the things that are happening around us. In other words, Solomon warns about incompetence being exalted over competence. It seems like we can see this. I mean, it's interesting how often he points out leadership, right? And we see these things, these inconsistencies, these things that are foolish and not wise, right? So it's kind of hard not to point out the politicians, and it's kind of hard not to say it, right? Because it's so glaring they're there. But for some, isn't it interesting how they can always fail upwards? The worse you do down here, the more you excel, right? The more they move you up the ladder. It's like for some, failure pays. <laughs> Foolishness pays. But if we understand the world we live in and who is the one who controls and manipulates and holds its sway, Satan, right? We know that he is at work, then therefore we know that foolishness is going to abound. He's not the father of truth, he's the father of lies. So these verses describe situations where people have been placed in inappropriate positions. Solomon says, look, it's foolishness to put fools in high places and qualified people in low places. Verses 5 and 6, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun, like an heir which goes forth from the ruler. Folly is set in many exalted places while rich men sit in humble places. And the idea is that those who are rich are those who are well trained and equipped. It's not merely just rich over the poor. That's not his point. Look at the parallelism that he makes here. In other words, fools are being elevated to positions of authority and respect. This isn't where they belong. Often the right people are not promoted to the right jobs. We're seeing this awful lot, aren't we? 
And our kids are going to walk into the workplace and oftentimes they're going to face this. And especially now, if things keep moving the way that they're moving, they're going to see more and more of this. Not quality being highlighted, not character being highlighted, but it's simply just trying to undo these inequities that we see in the world. And I understand there are injustices, no doubt. But that's not what this is doing, right? And they're going to find themselves facing these kinds of things more and more and more and more. So when my son comes home from work and he's talking about how they, they acknowledge how hard he's working and the integrity that's there in the job and that all the managers are speaking well of him, I affirm that in him. Continue to work with integrity and honesty. Continue to be that example in that environment because you're going to see it less and less. Therefore, you must stand out more and more. In other words, the darker it gets, the brighter light needs to shine. And I just say this as fathers, sometimes we forget to do this. To say to our kids, good job. Well done. I'm proud of you. It's real easy for us to find the flaws and to point those out and to pick them out, right? I mean, we want the best for them, but sometimes we forget, brothers, we forget to encourage them. Acknowledge the things that they do right. Come alongside and affirm those things that they are doing right in their life. When we see wisdom pour forth from their heart, then say that. But we have a tendency to find the negatives. We want to fix those flaws because that's what we do. We want to fix things. But just remember, it's easier to tear down than it is to build up. And we need to put forth more effort to build up. And we need to recognize, right? Our rulers cannot recognize quality and giftedness and release people to do that. And we expect them to do that. But if our kids don't see that in our home, they're not going to expect it anywhere else. As fathers, we need to affirm the things that are in our kids' lives. Acknowledge them for who they are and who God has designed them to be. Affirm that and then release them to that. I know it's hard, <laughs> but sometimes we want to create little mini-me's. The world's got enough with one. They don't need more of me. But they need my kids and who God made them to be. And I need to affirm that in them. And sometimes as a dad, I forget that. The foolishness of workers. Now, it's interesting because this isn't quite how we might expect it to play out. Solomon begins in verse 8. He who digs a pit may fall into it. A serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. Kind of like, what? He who quarries stones may hurt, be hurt by them. He who splits logs may be endangered by them. Now, some have looked at these verses and said, okay, the reason why one who's digging the pit, they might fall into it is because they weren't wise in what they were doing and therefore they were ill-prepared and therefore as a result of being foolish in their labor, this is the outcome. I don't understand it to be that way. Okay? 
he is going to talk about the issue of preparedness in verses 10 and 11. No doubt we will understand this from this. But what is he getting at with verses 8 and 9 ultimately? One, we have to acknowledge he's not teaching against hard work, right? Solomon's already affirmed that hard work, right, that there is, there is something to this honest labor and that there is joy that can be brought from it, right? As a dad, this, this does us well, right, when our kids have a good work ethic, right? It's good that they can go and they can do a job and do it well. We know as dads then we've done our job if that's what they do. But each instant here is just normal activity in life. Digging a pit, breaking through a wall, gathering stones, splitting logs. What's he getting at? The point is that if you read each one of these, one, we see that there is some sort of accident, unexpected or unforeseen outcome. He is going to talk about the issue of being prepared for your job. If your axe is dull, right, and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has advantage for giving success. You need to make preparations for a job. You have to have the proper tools, need to prepare it, right? Those tools need to be ready to do the job that they're meant to do. Otherwise, you're going to exert more effort, right? Work smarter, not harder, right? But here's the thing. You can't perceive everything. You can't see everything that's going to come. Notice how he says may in here, which indicates a modal sense. In Hebrew, they're all imperfects. One who digs a pit does not necessarily fall into that pit, but he may under certain conditions. But he doesn't control those conditions. What's foolish, and this is where the foolish workers comes in, is to think that you can see everything that's going to happen. Like you're going to see the snake behind the wall. Right? <laughs> Some woman I was watching, she just purchased a house and so she's having a little bit of reno done on this house. And all of a sudden she finds that there's snakes everywhere in her walls, under the house. They're coming out from all over the place. So what is he doing here? He's illustrating that mankind's limited in his ability to know and control future circumstances. Wisdom understands the dangers and uncertainties of life. You can make preparation. You can prepare for the job. You can have everything ready for that job, but you can't see everything that's going to come in that job. And I find it interesting that he does snakes here. I'm <laughs> like, why snakes? So this is what it brings to my mind. So I was a little kid, elementary school. Mrs. Woods, she asked us to draw pictures of two memorable moments in our life, right? I was like, yay, hi, right? So it's like, what do I have to draw from? So I draw these two pictures. Well, Mrs. Woods, she gets our pictures at the end of the day. So the next day she calls me in at recess to come to see her in the classroom. And I'm like, oh, great, I'm in trouble now. So I come in and see Mrs. Woods, and she's looking at my picture, and she starts to ask me questions, and I'm thinking, what in the world's going on here? And as, you know, I got older and reflect backwards, she was probably thinking that there was some psychological issue going on in my life. And it was coming out in my pictures because in both pictures there was a snake and then it was my house. So she's thinking, well, something's going on in his home, right? And this is a cry for help and I got to see this and do something about it. So she asked me about my picture, so I explained. I said, well, when I was a kid, much younger, I lived in Africa. 
and my sister, she would go to Kid Academy, which was in Lagos. We were in Nigeria. And so my sister, when she would come home for Christmas, we'd share a room. And I said, and one day we were sitting on our beds talking, and all of a sudden I saw a snake crawling out under my sister's bed. I said, we realized that there was a hole in the flooring, and the snake came in from the outside inside. This was a very poisonous snake. I said, the other incident was my dad was doing ministry in some villages that were far away, so he was gone for a couple of days. And I always, for as long as I can remember, I can't sleep through the night. So I get up and I'm walking out because I'm thinking maybe my mom might be up. And it's the middle of the night. I come out of my room and I see this snake crawling under our front door. And it got itself stuck. So I go get mom. I go out the window and I go get the neighbors to bring them back to kill this thing. So obviously Miss Woods is like clarification, right? Aha moment. Great. There's nothing squirrely going on here, but you live somewhere else and had this stuff. So it strikes me that Solomon is going to draw on this issue of snakes, right? Snakes coming out of walls. You've got the charmer of snakes. Why does he draw on this? Well, hopefully he's going to give us some understanding of this as he moves to verse 11. But it's the surprise of it. It's the danger there. It's that which we cannot see always. So what we can find in these verses is that an innocent person can simply be engaged in their occupation and accidentally injured. These aren't punishments for bad behavior, which sometimes this is how they're interpreted. I don't understand it this way. No matter how careful a person can be, whether they're digging a pit, whatever it may be, there is something that they may not see or plan for. Accidents happen. They're unavoidable. <laughs> As a dad, I need to remember this. Accidents happen. We don't know why God brings these things into our life, but they happen. But sometimes as dads, we want to highlight everything that's wrong and we can't just acknowledge that this was an accident and it didn't have anything to do with you. And you did everything right and it still didn't work out right. Right? We cut ourselves some slack, but when our kids do this, you must have done something wrong. <laughs> some reason or another, it's your fault there's a snake behind this wall. Really? And when I look at it that way, the absurdity sometimes when I address my kids about things, right? Holding them accountable for things that they are not accountable for. And they don't have control over. And as much as they may do everything right, accidents happen. I still remember my dad. I'm getting a battery out of the back of the car, and it's in a cardboard box. And he says, grab it by the handle. So I grab the box by the handles, and I pull it out. And that battery falls out from the bottom of that box, and it crashes, and everything goes everywhere. Stephen Allen! <laughs> I grabbed the handles, Dad, just like you said. The box <laughs> is the problem. <laughs> Right? But how often do we do this? And I have to remind myself of this, 
and I, this has just been lately for myself with my kids, is just telling myself, you know what? As parents, we have to give our kids room to fail. Because we also then, by doing that, give them room to have victory. I can't always be there to walk with them through stuff. They're going to fail, but where do they go when they fail later in life, right? Who do they turn to? Dad's not going to be there to pick them up. So where do they go for advice? Where do they go for instruction? Where do they go for understanding? And sometimes if we don't let them fall, right, they're not going to learn those lessons. And we want to put out all the safety nets for them on everything. But we're not helping them by doing that. It's like a parent when you see your kid fall and immediately it's like you rush it. Oh yeah, pick them up. And they look at us to see how to respond to it. They fall down, they look at mom and dad. If you panic, right, they're going to start crying. But if you pick them up and say, it's fine, brush yourself off, go play, then they're going to treat it like it's all right. This happens in life. You fall down, you get up, you rub some dirt on it, and you go back to work, right? Also, he helps us to understand that there's a fine line between production and catastrophe. There's no guarantees of success in life. You can do everything right and still wind up on the bottom. And if that happens and you ask the Lord, what is it you're trying to teach me by this? Because we know ultimately he's in control. Is he not sovereign over all the seasons in our life? And Solomon has already reflected the fact that he is in control of everything that happens in our life. It's the fool who wants to control things. It's the wise person who understands they don't. <laughs> and this by no means removes responsibility from us. Verse 10, verse 11, right? Wisdom and its application. You need to work smart. You need to use the right tools. They need to be prepared for the job. If the ax is dull, then you need to sharpen it because if you don't sharpen it, then you're going to exert more strength. It's interesting that in Hebrew, he uses the plural form here for strength. In other words, this is what we call a plural intensification. The point is that it is a waste of a great deal of strength and energy. If a person is not wise, he will have to use a lot more energy and waste his efficiency. Work smarter, not harder. As kids, this is what we do. Guys, we're young. We work our way through it, right? Strength. Brawn. We carry the thing by ourselves. <laughs> Get a little bit older, someone help me. <laughs> Stand on the other end and I'll take this end and we'll carry the load together. Then when you get older, you realize that they have these amazing straps that you can put under the thing and you get two people on either side and it feels like you're not carrying anything. And you can move refrigerators and everything else, right? So help them to learn how to work smarter, not harder. Use your heads. There still is responsibility on our part. Wisdom and timing, verse 11. Timing can be everything. If the serpent bites before being charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. Go through the motions, do your thing, right? 
Snake charmers in those days was a means of entertainment. And it's interesting that snakes, they don't have external ears, so it was by censoring and bone structure in their heads and how they can sense things, but more importantly, it was the charmer himself, the sway, the staring. When you go through the motions, right, and everything is done, it's in proper order and proper timing, snake doesn't bite, people applaud, and you get your benefit. So wisdom and timing is everything. I tell one of my boys, he's, he's sarcastic. I love his humor, but I had to tell him for years, it's all about the timing. <laughs> the timing, right? When you're being disciplined by mom or dad, now is not the time. <laughs> Foolish talkers, we'll end with this and I'll let you ponder on leadership. Foolish talkers can be destructive, unreasonable, uncontrolled, boastful. Man. This is a good one. Verse 12, destructive. If the, it goes on to say, words from the mouth of the wise are gracious, while the lips of fool will consume him. Ever struggled with saying things that are gracious? I say dads probably struggle with this more than moms do. Giving that timely word, right? Jesus always knew the right thing to say and the right time to say it. That's pressure. <laughs> But it's a good kind of pressure. Knowing the right time to say certain things to our kids, right? And the right words to say. We need to work on this. Or maybe I need to work on this. You're probably already there, but I need to work on this. A wise person will always speak gracious words that are suited to the listeners and to the occasion. Now, remember Christ, I mean, he did clear out the temple, right? He overturned the tables. He called them out for turning the Father's house into a den of thieves. But he always knew the right thing to say. Whether it's personal conversation, public ministry, he always knew. We need to know this. It's a tough place to be, and I realize that, right? It's like someone calls and they want an answer from you. And it, they're looking for the right answer, right? And you want to communicate it in the right way. Who do you turn to? This is interesting. This is from Isaiah. And this is one of the servant psalms. So it is about the Messiah. Notice the capital M on me. So notice what it says about the suffering servant, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The sovereign Lord has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. Who do I lean on for this? Who do I go to for this? I need to emulate him in this, but I also need him for this. <laughs> Our kids need this from us, fathers. 
They need us to speak the truth from the Word of God to them at the right time and in the right way. In other words, we don't go in with shotgun blasts. We go in with scalpels. We're surgeons and we should do a precise work. Souls depend on us giving them the right answers, don't they? Our kids are going to base their lives on the things that we tell them. We better be here. Tell Dad. Look, I, I read a book one time on being a godly man, and it was dealing with godliness, and, and the author said, you need to be well-read to be a godly man. In other words, read a bunch of different books. <laughs> and it struck me as odd that he would say that, right? Because really the only book I need to know is this one. And before I read any other one, I need to know and read this one. And I need to study this one. Because any kind of power and authority that one might have in the words they speak comes from here. My opinions are simply that, my opinions. My view of things. It's not binding, nor are they authoritative. They're like noses. Everyone has one. <laughs> what my kids need to know is truth. They need to know the truth. And they need me to communicate it in a way that they will understand it and get it in the moment that I'm supposed to give it. Fools, they burst out and they do whatever's on their mind. They just spew, right? How many times we do this? We see our kids do something and just emotionally it comes and then, right? The words just flow. Don't stop to think what we're saying to them. Doesn't mean we don't ever correct them or reprove them. In the end, it is the fool himself who is hurt most of all. He will be consumed by his own speech. This is interesting. The, the word is bala in Hebrew. Now, it's interesting because Solomon is doing a play on words, and only if you know Hebrew you're going to get it. So, in languages... There are times where you have words that are pronounced the same but have totally different meanings. So in English, we have the word board and board, right? Spelled different, pronounced exactly the same, but have two totally different meanings. Sometimes there are words that are spelt the same and sound the same and have totally different meanings. Our English word saw, it is a tool with serrated edge, yes? But it's also past tense for see. There's a third meaning. You can look it up, Google it if you want. Check me on it. There's a third meaning. It is a proverb, a maxim. In other words, the old saw is, there's nothing new under the sun. Said the same, spelt the same, three totally different meanings. Solomon does that here with bala. There are two different meanings for this word. One is to speak eloquently. The other one is to consume oneself. It is self-destruction. In other words, he says, rather than speaking eloquently, the fool utters words that are self-destructive. He swallows himself. He gulfs himself up. Your words ever come back to bite you with your kids? And the older they get, man, they're going to point it out to you, right? And then it's like you're so precise on what they say and what they do in their life, and then they get older and they start doing it to you. And you're like, Don't do that to me, right? Your words will come back to bite you. If we just let them come out of our mouth, we don't think about what we're saying. We just give air to whatever we feel in a moment. They will come back to bite us. 
He who guards his mouth, Proverbs says, preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. Unreasonable, wicked madness, wacko words is what Solomon says, if I can put it in pedestrian terminology, they don't even make any sense. What he says doesn't make sense. The longer he talks, the crazier he becomes. You ever have that person in a conversation? What they're saying has nothing to do with the conversation. You're like, what are you talking about, man? Are you even present? It's like you're not even in the ball game. You're not even in the same stadium, nor are you in the parking lot. You're somewhere else. But they love the sound of their own voices. You ever meet someone like that? Yakety, 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 yak. And you're thinking this person would be so much better off if they just stopped talking. (laughs) Because they don't even know what they're saying. A Jewish writer, Shalom, he said this. He says, you can tell when a fool speaks. He grinds much and produces little. Are your words profitable when you speak to your kids? Do you say things that mean something? Do you say things that that will hang on for them and that they'll look to and draw from in later years of life? Or do they just walk away from our houses saying, I'm never going to be like that? Uncontrollable multiplied words. The fool is full of words, verse 14. The fool multiplies words, no man knows what will happen and who can tell him what will come after him. In multitude of words, sin is lacking. Sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. The more you talk, the more likely it is you're going to sin. You're better off just keeping silent, right? If you're a talker, how many people have you had to apologize in your life for saying something you shouldn't have said, right? Talking and eloquence are not the same thing. To speak and to speak well are two different things. A fool can talk, but a wise man, he speaks. He says something that means something. It's not just gibberish to him. When you open your mouth, do your kids listen? Or do they go, ah, here we go again. Dad's going to ramble on. Or do they wait for the wisdom that comes from you? The person who can control his tongue or her tongue is able to discipline the entire body, James says. Boastful, no man knows. Verses 15, 14 and 15, we'll end with these two. Foolish people talk of the future as though they know all about it. They're going to go on and on, right? But who knows the future? Proverbs 27.1, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what the day may bring forth. But I put it on the calendar. I scheduled it. Of course it's going to happen. (laughs) Several times Solomon has emphasized the fact that man is ignorant of the future. The truth that the wise receive but fools will reject. And there's a bit of humor here. And the first 15 is tough to do and I'm just going to try and lay it out for you. But he moves from 14 to 15. As he talks about the multiplication of words, he's going to talk about the wearisome in verse 15. In other words, the fool boasts about his future plans and wearies people with his talk, but he can't even find the way to the city. 
Now you have to understand the humor in this. Those days, there weren't such meticulous road systems and complex road systems like today. If you're making a move from one city to the next, the pathways were pretty marked out. They were easy to follow. You had no trouble finding the next major city, i.e. that's the point here. You're so foolish you can't even find the next major city and yet here you are talking about tomorrow as though somehow you control it. The fool is so busy talking about the future that he loses his way in the present. I've had to find in my own heart at times I do this. We put so much stock in what's going to come later in life with our kids that we fail to enjoy the present with them now. We don't know how long they will have us, nor do we know how long we will have them. So often we're so focused on the future as dads and planning for the future and all of this stuff for the future and everything's for the future that we lose sight of what is present now. And with this, this one dad, he did, did this. He wanted to have a family business. He worked hard to establish this business. Kids got older, and then he was going to hand it over to them. And so this is what he did. Kids got older, son and daughter, and he comes to them and says, I want to give you the business. It's all yours now. I've worked hard to establish this. I want you to have it. And they said, we don't want to have anything to do with this business. He said, why not? And they said, Dad, why would we want the thing that has taken you away from us all these years? Why would we want that in our life? So much we're planning for the future that we fail to live in the present. We don't know what's going to come tomorrow. We really don't. Enjoy today. Enjoy today with your kids. Amen? Rob, would you close in prayer, brother? Thank you.